NHK. Radio 3. Anna-Marie Evans joins us now with more Hong Kong Heritage. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This month marks 70 years since what became known as the Pearl River Incident when seven British Royal Navy seamen were killed when their motor launch 1323 came under heavy shelling from a Chinese gunboat. In 2003, I interviewed the late Gordon Cleaver, who at just the age of 20 had to take command of the motor launch and bring it back to Lantau. This week, I play part of that interview with Gordon Cleaver, but I also talk to John Fleming, who came to Hong Kong in 1952 alongside Gordon as young Royal Navy recruit. John still lives here and a couple of months ago celebrated his 90th birthday. He starts by telling me about when he first arrived and lived at HMS Tamar. Well, I arrived in Hong Kong 1952 on the, um, one of the troop ships, or Empire Halidars, sailing from Liverpool. And we arrived here in March, which was, the weather was quite good at that time. So you arrived in 1952. What were you, about 19 years old? Uh, actually, I was 18. Yes. And to me, it was, well, it was the first time I'd been to the Far East, so it was quite exciting. So where do you come from in England? Well, I come from the naval port of, uh, on the south coast of England, which is Portsmouth. Now, of course, there's not so many ships there, but at one time there was battleships there and aircraft carriers when we had a Royal Navy. And what made you join the Royal Navy? Well, actually, I think because it's in the family, my father, he was in the Royal Navy, and my brother was in the Royal Navy, so I just followed suit. Quite apart from that, it was a job. It was a regular income, and at the same time, I'd get the opportunity of seeing the world, and they paid me for it. And it turned out to be actually the correct choice. It was a wonderful choice. So you joined at what age? 15 years and four months. <laughs> age of 18, you arrived in Hong Kong. Can you remember what your first impressions were? Well, I wasn't impressed, to tell the truth, because in 1952, air conditioning had not yet arrived. We were based at Tamar, which was Nissan Hutch, and there was just two fans in the ceiling clonk, clonk, clonk during the night to keep cool. There's not much activity in Hong Kong itself. There were some nightclubs in Central, which was beyond our financial means. But there was Wong Chai, the red light district, and that was uh, Jaffa Road and Lockhart Road, and that was full of bars. But in those days, that was wild lit. It wasn't as lit as it is today with the neon signs going across the road. In those days, signs going across the road were banned because of typhoons and the danger to people. But there was a girly bars there and they did a roaring trade when the American fleet were in from... Because um, 1952, you're arriving in the middle of the Korean That's War. The Korean War, so we had the American fleet in and the Australians, so they did quite a good business. But were things quite tense? Were there major security issues for you within the Royal Navy here? Well, not really. The, the, the Korean War didn't really affect us here in Hong Kong. There's no worry at that time of the Chinese coming over the border. So, no, things weren't tense. We were, were quite relaxed here. In fact, they came here for their hour and hour, Western, Western recreation. Who came? The, the Americans. They'd come down from Korea for hour and hour and back to war again sort of thing. 
So when you first joined the Royal Navy and when you're first in Hong Kong, describe what your duties were. Well, actually, I was assigned to the Hong Kong flotilla, which was based on HMS Tamar. And our job, these were small gunboats, by the way, 80 foot long. And our job was to assist the police in anti-piracy, immigration and illegal immigrants. That was really our main duty. But as a sideline, of course, we were, if Commerce warships came down the Pearl River, then, of course, we would take photographs. But that was unofficial, really. And when we're describing HMS Tamar, of course, the ship Tamar is still, it's, it lies beneath Victoria Harbour. HMS Tamar was, in fact, a, a base. The area would now be used by the PLA, amongst others. That's correct. Uh, the original HMS Tamar was a hawk, which was sunk during the war. And then when we took Hong Kong back in 1945, the army barracks, known as Wellington Barracks, the army didn't want it because it was so dilapidated. They didn't want it, so they gave it to us. And this then became the HMS Tamer Naval Base, which um, consisted mainly of Nissan huts. There was only three actually brick buildings in Tamer. Which so was Nissan huts were made out of what? Metal? Oh, the Nissan huts, yeah, corrugated. Mm. So it was corrugated metal, yeah. So quite hot in the summer? Very hot. What we had with these two fans, which of course drove the hot air back down onto you, which weren't very satisfactory. <laughs> so what did you do? What was your job? Well, my job, actually, because mm. I was on the, the gunboats, where somebody was, the gunner was looking after the ammunition and everything, another one, one was upper deck, which is washing down all the paintwork, things like that. Another one was the lower deck, cleaning the lower deck. Another one was looking after the captain, the sort of steward. And then we had two stokers on board and also... Well, so when you say two stokers, in 1952, how was the gunboat actually, you know, what, what were you using to fuel the engine? Well, actually, we called them stokers in those <laughs> days, but yes, we had two diesel engines. <laughs> and now, of course, nowadays they refer, refer them to as engineers. Right, OK. But our, in our day, there was a stoker, leading stoker, PO stoker. There were stokers, which were to carry off from the old days of using coal. Yes, you'd have been stoking the fuel, you'd have been uh, uh, that very arduous job of loading the coal when it was steam-driven. But by the time you're arriving in 1952 here in Hong Kong, it's diesel-engined gunboats. Give me the sizes again of these gunboats. Well, there was ten in total, and four of them were on loan from Australia, and they were 80 foot. We had six that were shipped out from the UK, and they were 75 foot. But the Australian boats were far superior. And on board, what sort of ammunition would you have had in terms of weaponry? Well, initially when I arrived, we had a Bofors, which was 40 millimeter, which was an anti-aircraft gun. And on the stern, we had an Orlikan, which was 20 millimeter, designed for, for what they assumed would be an air attack. But then within a few months of my arrival, they reconsidered and they changed this to an anti-tank gun which was a six-pounder, because they considered then that we would probably, if any, any attack come, then it would probably be from the sea, as far as we were concerned. Therefore, they changed it from the Bofors to the anti-tank gun six-pounder, which was automatic, by the way, automatic loading, and also was hydraulically controlled, something like a, a joystick on the airplane to turn it left and right and up and down. It was hydraulic, so it's it quite modern. These gunboats in 1952, did they date back to the Second World War? Oh, yes, 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 before the war. In fact, two of the Australian boats, 1323 
and 1329 were in service before the war in Australia. So how many gunboats in total? How many were in the flotilla? Well, total, as I say, we had four Australians, six UK, so it was a total of ten. And the four Australian were manned by British Royal Navy, or did you also have Australians with you? No, they were totally British. Simply the patrol boats were handed over to us, and we did the crewing of them and renewing the engines and maintenance and the guns and things like that. What would your hours have been? 24 hours, really. (laughs) I mean, we'd be up at 6 o'clock, breakfast before 8, and at 8 o'clock we'd fall in the parade. So where did you live? Did you live on board or did you um, have other... or you lived in these Nissan huts? No, we lived in the Nissan huts when we were not on patrol. But when we were on... So all in bunk beds? uh, Yeah, yeah, they were double bunk beds. But then, of course, on patrol, we were on patrol for three days on, then three days off. Three days on, three days off like that. Did you always enjoy the sea? Oh, I loved it, really. It was really nice. Didn't have any problems with nausea? Oh, no, none at all, no. We loved it because it was so peaceful and we had lots of old junks. In fact, one of our jobs was to board junks and search them. And I boarded one old grey, old junk, and it still had the cannon on board. It still had the cannon on board. And it was, in fact, it was my first boarding party. And I got on board and ordered the captain to had a machine gun. I felt really great being 18 years old. There was me armed to the teeth. And this poor fisherman there, the captain, I ordered him, ordered him to go for it on the bow, and I searched his cabin. And all I could find was carts and carts of cigarettes. But what went through my mind was, my God, he's a heavy smoker. And uh, you know, it never occurred to me much later that he was probably smuggling cigarettes. Never occurred to me because, of course, when we go on patrol, we take three or four packets of cigarettes with us. If there was in Would my you... mind, he went to sea fishing for a long time, so he took all these kinds of cigarettes with him. I mean, would you have had, I mean, in the Navy at that point, would you have even had a cigarette allowance? No, we didn't have an allowance uh, in those days. We could get them from the NAFI, um, what we call duty free. And the NAFI, what was the NAFI then? Oh, Navy, Army, and Air Force Institute. Navy, Army and Air Force Institute. So it was a cafe? It was a, well, yeah, so it was a military cafe in, in the Army barracks with the Navy and the RAF, you see. I'm sitting here with John Fleming between Pier 7 and 6 on a, quite a sunny day, looking out to Victoria Harbour with the Star Ferry just coming in. Uh, behind us, I don't know whether you can hear, are some sparrows and a little bit of a breeze underneath the tree here. John Fleming turned 90 a couple of months ago. The last time, in fact, I saw John was 20 years ago, so we've got a little bit of catching up to do. But, John, it's interesting to hear about your years in the Navy and also the fact that you do go right back to the early 1950s. It's interesting that uh, your, your job was to go on these junks. When I look at photographs from that time, were a lot of the fishermen still on sailing junks as opposed to having diesel engines? Oh, these motorised fishing vessels, they, they, they didn't come into much, much later. What we saw was the real fishing fleet, all of junks. And also, you wouldn't really classify it as a junk because it's half the size of a junk. But you wouldn't even classify it as a sandpan because it was bigger than a sandpan. But these were the fishing boats. When you used to see these junks, were they quite magnificent with their sails? Oh, it's actually incredible, especially the old junks. Apart from the cannon, you'd see the, the sails with tattered with some holes in them and things like that, you know. And that the whole family would live on board and eventually the son would take over and then the son's grandchildren would take over. The junk was the family home and it remained the family home through generations, in fact. 
generations. You were saying three days off, three days on. So what was involved in the three-day shift? When we'd come on patrol, and mainly it would be the Pearl River. Always in the Pearl River, around Chayo, off Chayo and things so like that. So you would... Uh, now, where was your gunboat moored? I mean, would you be in Tamar? When, when we think of Tamar, of course, if you go around Tamar Park, this is the area that was previously HMS Tamar and would have been... I mean, describe that to me as well. You were saying about the Nissan huts. It would have been the real hub of... or hive of activity of the Navy. Well, yes. Well, actually, obviously, obviously Tamar was on the shoreline. And the gunboats, when they were not on patrol, they would be in what we call the boat pool. And the boat pool was a basin, which is now, actually, it's where Tamar Park is now. Yes. That was originally, that was where the boat pool were. Four of them could park inside Tamar, alongside Tamar. And if there's more than four, then two would more at two boys, which are off of Tamar. And also, on the Kowloon side, we had the small ships maintenance base, SSMB, and for minor repairs, we would also go over to Kowloon, which is, uh, which was four piers along from the Star Ferry, and that was also a small naval base. And uh, when you were on board, as you said, you had these uh, a crew of how many? Well, there was a total of eleven. Uh, there was a skipper, uh, the PO Stoker, an Audrey Stoker, a Sparker. You had a chef, a cook. Oh no no no! In fact, one of the seamen was detailed to be cook for three months, which included me. So we had to cook for three months. And the kitchen, which is the galley, yeah, the galley, the kitchen. There was on the English boat. There was coal fired. It was really hot, coal fired, and you sweat like hell during the cooking. But on the Australian boats, the four Australian boats, there was diesel diesel fire and it was so simple to light it up within five minutes and do the cooking and then switch off again whereas on the English boats with coal you, the cook had to get up early in the morning five o'clock in the morning with paper and wood and when I did it I smoked everybody out because it was, the wood would, would send lots of smoke through the mess deck and they'd all be coughing and climbing up on deck to get fresh air. Every year on the 9th of September you go to the cemetery to stand at the graveside and honour uh, seven graves that are there. That's correct, yes. Seven of my shipmates, they passed away on the 9th of September in 1953 when they were on patrol. So 70 years ago. And uh, what can you say, you were uh, a young man in the Royal Navy. Uh, you had just come to Hong Kong the previous year. That's correct, yes. I was just on 19 years old when that took place, yeah. When I arrived in Hong Kong, I was sent or earmarked for ML1323. There are a number of my friends still on board when I was on board. There's Gordon Cleaver and Morris, Bogey Knight. Quite a lot of them were still on board then that had been on board when I left. And can you tell me about that fateful day? But um, they had a new captain on board, a South African named Merriman, and it was quite daring, actually quite provocative, really. And he often went to the Pearl River and unfortunately taunted the common scumboats by... How do you know this? Well, but from what this crew told me when they came back, he had quite a reputation, and also from his logbook. He used to go and take photographs, which was encouraged by uh, the intelligence, but at the same time he used to go too near them, which rather annoyed them. But anyway, on the 9th of September, 
when he went on patrol this time, he saw a big warship. He took photographs of her, of course, but he also he, he approached. He changed course, ordered course to get near her, and the big ship ordered him to stop. But of course, Merriman put the engine full ahead to turn away. And this is when the gunboat, or rather the warship, she opened fire with machine gun fire, then heavy shell fire. The first one smashed into the engine room, another one into the wheelhouse, several into the wheelhouse, and one onto the bridge, in which six were killed instantly in the, in the wheelhouse. And Merriman, he, he that received a direct hit, and Merriman's legs were blown off. Yes, I mean, it was incredible. There was two, at least two to three shell hits into the wheelhouse. As you say, it ends up with seven killed. Merriman is on the bridge. His, his legs are blown off uh, in terrible agony there. But meanwhile, about four and then two, or, but, I mean, in very short succession, there's uh, six who were trying to hide in the wheelhouse who, who were killed. That's it. Eventually, the total, of course, was six in the wheelhouse and Merriman on the bridge was seven. Um, there's Gordon Cleaver... Um, still alive, but he was on the starboard side, away from the sh- uh, from the the shell fire. And he was just twenty at the time. And he was twenty years old, and he was a lead acting leading seaman. So he was now the senior one alive on the boat since Merriman had died, and the P.O. Coxon Keats he had died too. So Cleaver was now the senior man alive on the boat. Merriman, um, as you say uh, in the logbook, and also from accounts from the fellow crew, had been seen as being quite a provocative or a bit gung-ho but there's another crew member who disputed that well that's yeah he was a stoker down below or what you would call an engineer now and he disputed said Miriam was good but actually his record clearly indicates that it's provocative so with seven men killed they're now turning back they're crippled uh, where did they come back into well they're headed for the nearest point which, of course, which was the west of Lantau to a small village called Tayo, where there's a little pier. And he headed for the Tayo, which I think it took him around about two hours. The attack took place at 3.15, and he arrived just after 5 p.m. at Tayo, and a small little village there, where he managed to get her alongside with the help and assistance of a police launch. Do you remember where you were when you heard about it? I was on the 13.28. We'd come off patrol on that day and handed over to the 1323 and we had gone to the Kowloon Naval Base, SSMB, Small Ships Maintenance Base, to do some repairs. And therefore, when the news came through, yes, when we came through, the news came through, the captain of Tamer ordered a clear lower deck. And we all mustered on the, on the parade ground, all of us, and the captain of Tamer told us that MR-3023 had been hit and there were casualties. There was definitely casualties, but didn't know who or how many that surely had been stopped. Then the senior officer of the Hong Kong Fertiller, who happened to be my skipper on the 1328, which was then based over Kowloon side, he decided to go to, to Tayo on the 1329, which was made available and in the boat port at Tamer at that time. Twenty years ago, the late Gordon Cleaver came to Hong Kong with several members of the Hong Kong Flotilla Association, men who served at HMS Tamar. I sat down for a chat with Gordon Cleaver. When you became a leading seaman, were you then on one of the motor launches that were used to 
Uh, and the idea of it was that, that you patrol the, the Hong Kong's maritime border? That's right, yeah. yeah. Basically, you're supposed to work with the marine police or the police of the area, and you stopped and searched. That was the main part, you know. There's three different patrols, west, east and south. And basically, you, you patrolled the waters inside and to the extremities of the water. And you stopped any vessel that was in what was called then the territorial waters, you know. There's a certain procedure you had to follow. Hoist a flag, I think it's K flag, send them a signal, and then hopefully they'd stop. If they didn't, it was your job to stop them, you know. Most boats stopped. Now and again they didn't. It was interesting. Very, very interesting. Virtually everybody in the flotilla was young, weren't they, John? If you were 23, you were old. If we go back to the early 1950s, you've become a leading seaman and uh, your job is on one of the motor launches. So you're out, you've got to go and uh, have a look at these boats, check that they're not smuggling anything, monitor the border. Now, in 1949, mainland China had become communist. And uh, what was the general feeling in 1952-53? What was the general sense in British Hong Kong? I think, well, I remember the, the, the... the captain of Tamar when I first came here. Quite a few of us came in together. John was with us. And he said, you are now in what is termed a danger zone. Didn't call it a war zone. He just said a danger zone that you've got to be careful. And so there was this kind of, not a war footing, but a a preparedness in case something happened. We used to practice all silly things, you know, just in case, you know. um, Was it it Tolo Harbour, John? They used to have boats down there and they would practice what would happen so they could shell from Tolo Harbour. And periodically there was a silly little skirmish. Maybe sometimes because the, at that time the communist Chinese wanted to exert their authority. Maybe because we thought we should exert our authority. I don't, I, I don't know really at that age. You don't really think of politics. You just think, well, I'm in the Navy, this is what they're telling me to do. And so you do it, you know, it's a job you've been trained to do. The rights or wrongs of it don't really enter into it if you're a serviceman. You just do as you're told. So you carry guns on board the motor launch? Oh, yeah. First of all, we had a bofa at the front and an orlican at the back. And then they changed the bofa for a six-pounder, which is much heavier gun. So on one of these motor launches, you'd have had a captain and then how many crew? You'd have had coxswain. Leading hand, six seamen, two stokers and a telegraphist. Was that 11, John? 11. 11. That was, that was the crew. OK, I'm going to take you back to the tragic events of the 9th of September, 1953. Now, you as leading seamen, you'd have got, you'd have got the supplies ready that morning. Yeah, just a normal patrol. We are out for three days. So a couple of AGs would come with me and I'd go and I'd book down what we want. We'd get meat, vegetables, a lot of tin fruit we used to have. Just make sure we had enough food for the day, ice for the icebox, because there were no such things as fridges then. We didn't have enough power to run them, I don't think. We used to get ice boxes. If we ran out of ice on patrol, we'd call in at San Miguel's Brewery and they'd give us a few blocks of ice to stuff in the bottom, you know. Just ice and no beer? No, no beer. No, no, that was taboo. In those days, you, you, you weren't even allowed a totter. Was it 21, John, before you had a totter run? You know, no one was allowed. They used to get a totter run, but only if you were 21. And then what we did that day, about 10 o'clock, I suppose, normal time, left the boat pool. We had to dress up 
in all whites to leave the harbour because um, quite a few naval ships in then and each naval ship had to salute the other one and the junior ship always salutes the senior ship. Well, when we went on the patrol, we were the junior boat in the Fatilla. So, therefore, we were about the junior boat in the Far East Fleet. <laughs> so, we saluted everything that moved, you know, and it had a white flag on it, you know. We didn't <laughs> walk around here. Yes, sir, thank you very much. Tell me, the motor launch was heading out of Hong Kong Harbour? Yeah, yeah, out past Green Island. And up the outside of Lantau, between Lantau and Chung Chow, and round the top end, not done very often. Most of them out Green Island and through past San Miguel's Brewery to Castle Peak that way, but we went out that way. That way. I don't know why we did it, but we just we just did it. And we were cruising out there that afternoon, you know. And as our want, I think, or as was the skipper's want, it depended what he wanted to do. All of a sudden, he just called everybody up on deck. Apparently, he closed the vehicle, a boat to take some pictures, because that's what we used to do, take pictures... Seems crazy now, when you take pictures of anything entering up the Canton River, which we thought might be useful to naval intelligence or you know whatever it was, military intelligence, and we would do that. And this day, something went wrong. What it was, I don't know. But um, we were suddenly subjected to massive shelling. Very accurate as well. And he hit the boat. And basically, what used to happen, used to happen now and again, they'd pass a few shots in front of each other and the boats would turn away. And I think the first initial burst, his, his first reaction was to turn away from the trouble. You must not, in those days, didn't want any confrontation. Because it's obvious, you know, if, 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 you, if you look at the size of the new territories and, and Hong Kong, if the Chinese communists at that time wanted to, they could have walked over the top of it and basically... What the heck, he couldn't have stopped from, could you? And so, though there was a certain amount of trying to gather this information and put in on a show of force, I believe, he didn't want confrontation. And it happened this day. And we got hit, hit very, very severely, um, as we turned away, which basically disabled the guns, killed, at that time, six people. And then there was a lull... And then they started again, and another one killed. Then miraculously, two aeroplanes came over. Not armed. What they, were they meteors or something like that? Do you know what I mean? Screaming over the water, and the other boat turned away. And that saved us. I'm absolutely convinced of this. That without that, we would have been on the bottom. In terms of geography, were you on? With, what was the line, and, and what side were you on? Now this is where some of the dispute comes in. Immediately afterwards, from what I read, Communist Chinese said we were in their waters. We strictly denied it and said we were in international waters. And the, the, the chart reading, which was given when we had to send a message before our radio went dead, being fired on in position so-and-so, shows our reading but we were in international waters. Seven killed. Seven killed, including the captain, wasn't One. It? OK. Very seriously wounded. Right. Half his face hanging off. Another one with a massive piece of shrapnel in his shoulder. I had a bad leg somewhere along the line. And the others, you know, bruises here and there, obviously. So we just followed the procedure, you know. No steering, rig emergency steering, stuff like that. Keep the engines going, you hope, and headed towards Tai 
I always remember Nobby Clark, who was one of the strokers, saying to me, I don't think I can get the blasted thing out of gear. <laughs> Stuck in what we're going to do, you know. We'll run it on the beach if necessary. You know, not, not really interested as long as we... We managed to get it out of gear. And I suppose a mile, John, maybe, from Tayo, the police launch come out. We managed to stop the engine because we would have just dragged it. Anyway, and he shunted us. We went in close to Tayo Pier and they shunted us against the jetty. From Tayo, Gordon Cleaver and the other surviving crew members were taken to Hong Kong Island to the Naval Hospital. Their captain, Lieutenant Merriman, who was just 23, died from his injuries after arriving in Tayo. The men's funeral was two days later. Gordon Cleaver, who was just 20 at the time, was awarded the British Empire Medal for taking command of the crippled vessel and bringing it back. So what you heard there was the late Gordon Cleaver talking to me there in 2003, which marked the 50th anniversary of the incident. So he came here to meet up again with John Fleming and also with several members of the Hong Kong Flotilla Association. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong.